We're going to go ahead and get started. If you want to join us. in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for uh, your grace and your goodness and just the reminders uh, in Ephesians that we got to meditate on and uh, just that we were redeemed by your blood and uh, we are in Christ. So continue to encourage our hearts uh, with these truths. We pray that you would um, really focus our minds as we consider some, some difficult um, ideas in um, today's topic, uh, would you give us humility and understanding uh, as we process these things together? Uh, and would you ultimately equip us, Lord, um, to live life more like your son, that we could be uh, lights in this dark world? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are back to our um, class, Our Worshiping World. It's been kind of a two-week hiatus. Uh, we had a congregational meeting two weeks ago, and then um, Ruth Sen was here last week, and his, his talk kind of overlapped with this and, and was kind of went with the general flow of it. Um, but now we're kind of back to our schedule. Um, we've, we started out talking about Judaism, and we learned kind of about the spectrum within Judaism. There's Orthodox, very, very devout to you know, conservative to reform. There's a, there's a wide spectrum. Uh, we talked about just the difficulty of evangelizing um, Jews, that they are pre-offended just based on all the historical ways they've been treated. Um, but also we, we talked a little bit about the potential promise in Romans 9, to 9 and 10 and 11 of a potential future revival in the Jewish community. Um, we talked about Islam. Dan interviewed Phil DeHart, who has worked with Muslims for decades. And if you remember, one of the things Phil told us is the main thing we need to know about Muslims is that they, their longing is to get back to the golden age of Islam, where Islam was the world power. Uh, that's, that's, that explains a lot of um, Muslim thought and Muslim action in the world today. He also talked about how hard it is to disciple converted Muslims based on just the, their past and um, the, the rhythms, the, the, the habits that they have in their religion and how hard it is to disciple them out of those. And then uh, Steve did a great job teaching us about Jehovah's Witness. Um, you know, he helped us see how similar and yet how vastly different their beliefs are from ours. Uh, they make just slight adjustments that have massive implications. Um, and how we also, when we're talking to them about Christ, we really need to focus on the person and work of Christ in our discussions with them. And we're still going to look at uh, Christian science and Scientology, Hinduism and Buddhism, New Age and Mormonism um, in the coming weeks. And today, uh, we are talking about atheism and the problem of evil. Although it's not just going to be about atheism, I'm actually going to talk about other world religions as well and how they, um, how they discuss and process the problem of evil. Um, though atheism is not a religion per se, if you look even in our own town of Raleigh at the, the religious kind of affiliation of people and what the census reports is that Christianity is the highest religion in our town, but atheism is the second highest. So just even thinking about our own context and culture, 
uh, this is what we're dealing with the most, um, I would say, in our country as well. And a lot of the other religions we're talking about in this class are, are much smaller in our area. So I think it's important to have some discussion. And rather than do like a long treatment on atheism, going into all the nuts and bolts of it, I just want to focus on the problem of evil today because it's the most common cause of atheism and agnosticism. This is probably the number one reason why people um, are atheists. And I forgot to bring the books in here, but uh, I'm relying heavily on three books. One is called If I Were God, I'd End All Pain. It's by a guy named John Dixon. He's an Australian Christian author. Um, and then uh, D.A. Carson wrote a book, How Long, O Lord? Uh, very good book. I wish, you know, maybe in the future we could spend a longer time just going through D.A. Carson's book. It's, it's very helpful, but I draw a few things from that. And then um, many of you are probably familiar with Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. He has a chapter in there about the problem of evil, um, and I'm relying on some of his thoughts as well. All right, so the problem of evil. You've all heard the stories, stories like that of Nate. After five years of marriage, he wakes up in the middle of the night and, and wakes his wife up, and she sees that he's pointing at his mouth. And as she fully wakes up, she realizes her husband um, cannot speak, and he's afraid, and they head to the hospital. And the next day, he has emergency surgery uh, on brain cancer. And they can't get much of it, but the trauma of the surgery wipes out his memory. Um, and he no longer knows how to read or write. He can't recognize his little son. And while the operation has stopped the cancer, it has left his personality permanently altered. He's frustrated, angry, and irritable, and he needs 24-hour care. And after a three-year minimal recovery, the cancer returns, and he dies in four months. Where is God in that moment? A pastor is cutting his lawn. He looks up to see a, a, a big dump truck backing out. Uh, behind it is a little boy, and the dump truck runs over him, and the, and the pastor accompanies the hysterical mother and father to the hospital in, in the ambulance uh, where there's no hope for their little child. Where is God in those moments? Uh, foster children who know nothing but abuse, children born with severe disabilities, adults developing uh, crippling immuno, immune diseases, all the mass shootings in the last several years, six million Jews systematically exterminated in the Holocaust, the Rwandan genocide, the Japanese massacre of Nanking, tens of millions killed under Stalin, and then the tsunami you know, a few years back, killing near, nearly 300,000. Where is God in those moments? I want to tread lightly, I hope, this morning, because I know this is a topic that um, touches... Many of you at a deep level, and um, I know many of you have processed some of these questions and these issues in your own life uh, in a deep way. And it's because of this pain that many struggle to believe in God. I remember uh, witnessing to someone uh, um, that I was, I worked for a moving company in college, and I witnessed to one of them, and he proceeded to tell me as I talked about Christ, about how his daughter uh, worked uh, his daughter uh, went to a youth group, a local youth group, and uh, the youth leader uh, abused her. And, um, and then he you know, continued to talk about all the other evils and pains in this world and how you know, it's hard for him to, to believe in a God who allows these kind of things. So how do you respond in those moments? Does the existence of suffering disprove the existing of an all-powerful and all-loving God? Let me put that question in an equation. So 
this is kind of how it's generally put forward. Assumption one, an all-powerful God would be able to end suffering. Assumption two, an all-loving God would desire to end suffering. Fact, suffering exists. Conclusion, an all-powerful, all-loving God, therefore, does not exist. So that's a popular and compelling uh, train of thought. But let me ask you, is it logical? What do you guys think? Does this stand up to reason? Any thoughts? Yes. Right, right. So you're saying that assumption two, there's an issue with assumption two. Yeah, what were you going to say, John? Right, right. So until we can show categorically that there could not be loving purposes behind suffering, uh, the logical force of this argument dissolves. And so you could restate this, at least from a Christian perspective, um, and we'll, we'll talk more about Assumption 2 as we go on. But this, is, this would be it restated from a Christian's perspective. An all-powerful God exists, an all-loving God exists, facts, suffering exists. Conclusion then must be God must have loving reasons which he is able to achieve for permitting suffering. So this by no means solves the problem of evil, not even close. It just shows that the presence of suffering, it is not an intellectual dilemma, it's an emotional dilemma. The real question of suffering is not could God coexist with suffering, but the, the deeper questions are why would God allow it? And what has he done about it? And hopefully we can explore those questions a little bit this morning. I, I don't pretend to to have all the answers this morning, but at least hopefully give us some categories by which to address these issues. So there's been an array of responses um, throughout the, the years, the ages, all around the world. Human societies have known suffering and evil. Um, they've had to come to grips with the hard questions of life. And so Hinduism, for example, let's talk about that. I don't want to steal uh, Scott Pryor's thunder, who's going to teach on Hinduism in a couple weeks. But Hinduism has a very clear understanding of the issue. Does anyone want to try and kind of quickly summarize how would a Hinduism approach the problem of evil? What's their explanation of it? Karma. So what, explain that. Um, so suffering is ex explained in Hinduism essentially as payback uh, or as balance. You know, you're, you're getting something that had happened earlier. Um, all suffering is disease, rape, earthquake, famine is all karma. It's this universal principle that all actions of the past are balanced by events of the present. So when a three-month-old three baby dies in a devout Hindu family, what is the ultimate reaction of the family? They sincerely believe the event to be an appropriate reaping in the present of evil actions sown by family members in the past. When they see a beggar on the street, the reaction, at least uh, philosophically, is that this is deserved. It doesn't mean that they won't help him, um, but that's just kind of how they think about it. So, for example, here's a quote um, of how a, a Hindu processed the tsunami. And, of course, that happened in an area where there's lots of Hinduism. 
the tsunami that happened in Indonesia in 2004. And this is a, there's a much longer quote to this that I wish we could get into with a lot more interesting things, but, but here's just part of the quote. This person said, My belief is I'm connected to all humans, and while I grieve for those who have died, I don't feel sorry for them because they are part of me and part of the divine. Their deaths are a manifestation of karma, the debits and credits you amass through your series of lives. So Hinduism is, sort of has this all this comprehensive account of suffering. The why question receives an instant and all-encompassing reply. It's because it's deserved. And if it doesn't appear to be deserved, it's because we don't know what evil deeds um, one has committed in a previous life. And um, that book I said, if, God, if I were God, I'd end all pain. John Dixon, he has a great response to that that I wish we could get into. Um, and hopefully Scott will process more of that in, the, in a couple of weeks when we talk more about Hinduism. Uh, there's also Buddhism. I don't want to steal Mike Newkirk's thunder. He's going to be teaching on this in a couple weeks as well. Um, but Buddhism developed, actually, it's a religion that developed directly in response to the problem of evil and suffering. The original Buddha had been very sheltered growing up, and then at age 29, he encountered uh, suffering that he had never seen before in the world. He leaves his wife and his newborn child to go on this quest to find and understand suffering. And so he did this for seven years and still found no answers. And then one night he's meditating under a tree and this light bulb goes on. This idea that all pain is an illusion. Our experience of suffering is directly related to our attachment to this world. The more you love things of this world, the harder it will be when uh, they go wrong or they go away. So the pain of losing a loved one in a car crash is not caused by the crash itself, it's by the affection you have towards that person. Or the anguish of a beggar is not caused by the poverty itself, but by the desire for a better life. If you're able to remove desires by adopting the path of Buddhism, the experience of pain would evaporate. It would be like an illusion. So the goal of Buddhism is to escape the real world and experience the non-existence through nirvana. And um, John Dixon, he gives this story of this famous Japanese um, poet in the 19th century who wrote thousands of haiku poems. And, um, you know, he, he was trying to, you know, really embrace this Buddhist thought of, of this world is an illusion. And one of his mentors used the illustration of dew, that um, the things of this world are like dew. They're momentary without real substance and they go away. And uh, interestingly, this, uh, he wrote this haiku after his um, infant daughter passed away. So he says, this world of dew, that's using his mentor's uh, metaphor, is only a world of dew. So he's trying to embrace you know, this, this, this Buddhist thought, but then he ends, and yet, and yet. And you just see this, this longing, like, this can't explain it all. Now, um, you know, a, a good Buddhist will just explain that clearly this guy has not reached, you know, that deeper level of nirvana yet. He just has not embraced the illusion enough and he's working towards it. But of course, we would have a much different response based on our understanding, which I'll get into in a moment. Um, and then also their response to the tsunami. Here's a, um, here's a, a Buddhist quote 
based on that tsunami that happened. We all die sooner or later. Some have conditions for living long lives and short lives. That is your karma, the total effect of one's actions and conduct. What might have precipitated in the tsunami was a lot of people coming together who had the karma for a short life. And to an extent, this is perhaps a reflection that these areas were overpopulated. Um, then you have Islam. Uh, anyone want to guess what would be a typical Islamic response to evil and suffering? Anyone know their, their what was that? Allah's judgment. Yeah. No, I think that's definitely a big part of it. It's just this sense. Um, in the Quran, it doesn't speak much about evil and pain, um, yet there is still a very clear uh, philosophy towards it. And if you think about what the word Muslim means, it means one who submits to God. Uh, and the word Islam, do you know what the word Islam means? It means submission. And so for a Muslim, all events in history are absolutely determined. Absolutely determined. And you just have to submit. It's Allah's will. It's Allah's will. I remember having an extensive discussion about this um, with someone I worked with who was a Muslim. Um, and he's like, we're, we're trained to say, I, I, I don't remember the exact wording, but just some, it's, it's Allah's will. And so you see that how they process, one of them processed the tsunami. It's the teaching of Islam that it is through the will of God that this has happened. Uh, this is their reaction to the tsunami. Um, but then the positive side is the way mankind has reacted. People will question why it is taking place, why the enormity of loss of human life, but it is that aspect which is beyond us, and it's our firm belief that any disaster, anything of that nature happening is through the will of God Almighty. Allah knows best. When a person is born, one thing is guaranteed is death, but what form it takes is always beyond us. People of faith need to have a very firm belief in God that at the end of the day, it is through his will and for the betterment of mankind at large. Um, so they don't have a doctrine of, of original sin or the fall. Everything in this world is the way it's supposed to be. There's no sense of tragedy or abnormality. Um, everything is submission. There's no freedom, um, as Dan was talking about earlier. So for the Muslim, we have to understand that this is logical. This, this way of thought is very logical and actually very meaningful for them. It's logical because uh, you can just simply say the ways of Allah are unknowable. But it's also meaningful because suffering becomes an opportunity for the faithful to submit, to say why God is to refuse submission. All right, then we have atheism. Um, anyone want to try and guess, like, what is a typical atheist response to try to wrestle with the pain and suffering in this world? Anyone have any ideas? What was that? There is no reason. There is no reason. What were you saying? Stuff happens. Stuff happens. Yeah, I think those definitely um, get at it. Suffering is not karma or desire or Allah's will, but it's natural. It's natural. It's the unhappy byproduct of a universe driven by the random intersection of time and space. Um, everything that happens in the world, good or bad, happens without any design or thought at all. So Richard Dawkins, a famous atheist, says, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and we won't find any rhyme or reason or any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. 
DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. He says that with quite religious confidence, doesn't he? Um, So an earthquake, rape, cancer, it's all blind, pitiless indifference. And uh, John Dixon, in his book, he tells the story of a friend, a Christian philosopher he knows who had a debate with an atheist. Um, They were talking about the significance of God's existence. And the atheist said, since all events in the universe are random and mindless, the question of meaning and suffering um, is a meaningless endeavor. And the Christian, of course, said that that creed lacks empirical credibility. It can't, that, that creed cannot be lived out fully in, in the real world. Um, and he's kind of getting at that idea that we all have eternity in our hearts, that, that we all are longing for something more. And interestingly, John Dixon notes that one year later, the atheist in that debate, his daughter tragically died in a very horrible way. And he goes back to the Christian and he says, though intellectually I still um, am an atheist, he found himself unable to resist the impulse to cry, why? In his head, atheism seemed reasonable, but in experience, it collapsed. The thought that his daughter was lost to a universe of blind, pitiless indifference was unbearable and unlivable. So we have um, Hinduism, suffering as balance, Buddhism, suffering as illusion, Islam, suffering as determined, atheism, suffering as natural. What would you say is the common thread? Is, do you see any common threads in all of these um, approaches? Suffering. Suffering, that's good. <laughs> all right. What else? In terms of just how they're processing it. There's no purpose. There's no God. I mean, I guess Islam would disagree. Well, you're victims. You're all victims. Right. Yeah. And, and another thing is that there's no sense of um, this is not the way it's supposed to be. There's no lament in any of these. What were you going to say, Al? So there's no lament. There's no category for lament in any of those frameworks. So I love what John Dixon says in his book. He says Christianity is both true and livable. Um, you know, he talks about how just when, when the rubber meets the road, we saw that in that, in that haiku as well from that Buddhist. Um, when the rubber meets the road, uh, many of these, and he does a great job in his book of explaining how they're just not livable. So then... Um, What is a biblical response? Um, There's no clear-cut solution to the philosophical problem of suffering, but we have pieces to the puzzle. This is one of the, I was really helped by D.A. Carson in his book. He talked about how we have pieces to the puzzle. Um, And these pieces help build a picture that locates evil and suffering within a certain framework. 
We may not have enough parts of the puzzle to have a complete picture, but we do have enough pieces to make a framework, um, to, for the framework to be clear. And many of our problems with suffering arise from the fact that we ignore this biblical framework. And so we also have to say that the Bible doesn't present simple answers to the problem of evil, and I love that. It's nuanced, it's complicated, and there's something about the complexity that rings true in the real world. And that leaves me intrigued and ultimately comforted. So I want to, um, there's a lot of ways we could go at the kind of the biblical response or biblical understanding of evil and suffering. But I want to use the framework of um, just the, the storyline. Creation, rebellion, redemption, consummation. If you're going to explain the story of the Bible and the story of the world in four words, this is a good way. It was created, there was a rebellion, it's brought brokenness, there's redemption, and then there's consummation where it will all be made new. So um, I know you all know that framework, but let's, let's kind of dig deeper into it and look at how that framework can help us with the problem of evil. So um, first of all, creation. We see through looking um, through the lens of creation that we have the perfection of God. There is no darkness in God at all, the Bible says. Deuteronomy says, uh, he is the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Um, Nahum, um, in that prophecy, he, he says, and on the one hand, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. He takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. But in the same breath, a verse later, he says, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. We all know Exodus uh, 34 where it says, The Lord, the Lord, a God slow to anger, abounding in love, uh, full of steadfast love. Um, so we've got the perfection of God. We've also got, looking just at creation, the sovereignty of God. Uh, so Colossians 1, For by him, that's Jesus, who is God, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's just one of many verses that talk about the sovereignty of God. And, and Deuteronomy 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord. So John Frame talks about how Scripture never assumes that God owes us an explanation for what he does. Um, the problem of evil arises in a number of passages, and in each of those passages, the text never commentates, never comments, on the, the event. So you think of the, the biggest one in Genesis 3. It, it's, it explains the story of you know, Adam and Eve's fall and the temptation, but there's no like, side comment there of you know, here is all that was going on. It just happens. In Genesis 22, you, you have um, Abraham called to bring Isaac to the mountain. There's no comment on why God made Abraham do that. And the biggest example is Job, the book of Job. Uh, where we see this idea. The theme of Job, we often think the theme is, you know, pain and suffering and, and how to suffer, but the, actually the, the main theme of the book of Job is the limitation of human wisdom. If you, you trace it all the way to the end, the, the storyline, it's the limitation of human wisdom. Job is eventually demanding an interview with God. God gives him that interview, but what does God ultimately say um, when he's talking to Job? He talks about the complexities of the universe, where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who marked off its dimensions? And the point is that if Job is so ignorant concerning God's works in the natural world, how are we to expect 
um, us to understand the workings of God's mind in distributing good and evil. And, and we see ultimately how that affects Job and how Job just has this humble response and, and he is restored to a better life. So I, I think we have to at least note that Muslims have at, at least, I mean, all of these things that we said, there's, there's a kernel of truth in them. They're, they're human beings created in the image of God processing this world and, and they're, they're getting some things true. And, and so, you know, when Muslims just quickly resort to the sovereignty of God, there is some truth in that. It's just incomplete. The Bible gives a more full picture. But we do have to recognize the sovereignty of God. Um, we also see through just the story of creation, the goodness in the world. Um, Psalm 104 is a great example. God, you caused the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen his heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars that he planted, and then the birds build their nests, the stork has a home, the high mountains for the goats, the rocks are a refuge for the badgers. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you've made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Um, And so we still, despite the fall, we see so much uh, goodness in the world. And that's part of the biblical um, response, as we can still name. There is still much goodness in this world. Um, But also creation shows us human responsibility. Human beings are free creatures. Um, And Dan talks a little bit about that in his sermon today. But why does God not simply override our wills when we aim aim to cause harm or offense? And and why doesn't he stop the pain that we cause each other? Because so much of the evil in this world um, is human to human. Obviously, there's natural disasters as well and sickness. But the majority of it is human-caused. And surely God has the power to override our wills. Why not step in and stop us from making evil choices? Another question you could ask in response, you could answer that with a, with a, with a question. Uh, and John Dixon does that in his book. And This is a longer quote, but I want to read it. He says, If God did step in to bend our wills every time we mistreated one another, would the world in fact be a better place? At one level, of course, yes. We wouldn't be fighting each other. We'd be generous and so on. But at the more profound level, the answer must be no. If God intervened each time a crook pulled the trigger of a gun, every time a woman withheld money from the poor or any other large or small act of the will, would this improve our quality of life? Only at the superficial level. If God did consistently impose his will over and against our own, wouldn't we accuse God himself of tyranny? It would reduce human dignity to that of a computer or robot, pre-programmed with no expression of its own. The Almighty would indeed have a world of peace and harmony, but we ourselves would have no quality of life to speak of, for we would not be truly living. And then he uses the, the movie The Truman Show, if you've seen The Truman Show, kind of as an example of what he's trying to get at here. Um, so we are real independent beings designed for relationship with our Creator, uh, but because of this, we're also capable of defiance. And so we, in, in Christianity, we affirm this paradox of God's complete sovereignty over every part of our lives, as we just you know, preached in Ephesians 1, that, that he has uh, you know, predestined us before the creation of the world, but also complete human responsibility. And um, one of my professors in college had a great illustration. He said, you know, when you look at a mountain that's covered in clouds, you can see the two sides of the mountain going up, and we know that somewhere that mount, the, the mountain peaks. 
and those two sides come together, but the clouds are covering it. In a similar way, you have God's sovereignty on one side and human responsibility. We know, because the Bible affirms both, that somewhere they meet in God's wise mind, but, but they're, they're clouded. Um, and so we can trust that, that both of these things are true. But it's also important for us to realize that when we think about the problem of evil, that there is human responsibility. So then going to rebellion, the fall. We see uh, from this the extent of the fall. When it says in Colossians 1 that Jesus is reconciling all things to himself, that must imply what? That all things are affected by the fall. Not just our sinful hearts, although that's very profound, but even, you know, this world. That's why there's sickness, there's disaster. All, when it says that he's making all things new, that shows that all things are affected by the fall. Um, and then Romans 8 talks about how creation is groaning until the coming of Christ. Um, rebellion also teaches us about the problem of evil, the abnormality of evil. One person used the illustration of it's a parasite. We were to think of it like a parasite. And that's, that's one of the things I was getting at earlier, where there's, in those other religions, there's no sense of this is abnormal. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Um, but uh, this is what Christians affirm, the abnormality of evil. Um, it's not the way it's supposed to be. And then we also, in, in this category, need to think about God's attitude toward evil. It's something we can often forget. Isaiah 59 says, The Lord saw it, an evil thing, and it displeased him. But the actual meaning of the Hebrew there is it was evil in his eyes that there was no justice. You think of Proverbs 6, six things the Lord hates, seven are an abomination to him. He hates haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. I mean, this is God's heart and attitude towards evil and pain. Psalm 5, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. And then probably the, the best example is that Jesus wept um, at the, the tomb of Lazarus. He had, you know, Mary and Martha had asked him to come, and he, if you remember John 11, he stalls. He doesn't come right away. And then Lazarus ends up dying. So he had even stalled in coming. Um, and then he, he, you know, he gets to the tomb to heal Lazarus. He's going he's gonna to raise him five minutes later or so, and yet he's weeping. So why is he weeping? Why is he not excited? Uh, I think it's because there, there's anger in that weeping and, and there's grief. It's a moment where he's weeping over the brokenness of this world that we all experience and that he entered into. No one hates sin more than God. The Bible itself uh, just profoundly insists on the evil of evil. And then uh, one of the ways to kind of use the, the fall as a way to respond to, is, is to think about how the Bible teaches us to respond to evil. And I want to talk about three things about our attitude towards evil. The first is to lament. A third of the Psalms are lament Psalms. There's the book of Lamentations. There's the book of Habakkuk that we preached on a year ago that, that has profound laments. We just talked about Jesus lamented. Uh, Psalm 13 is a great example. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord. One commentator says, we have to remember that this is, and then, you know, as the psalm goes on, his mind begins to change and he begins to have more understanding. But remember that this is a song. Psalms are, are songs. They're not 
philosophical, theological treatises. For God to forget and hide his face, as the psalmist says, would be to deliberately abandon that person and to withhold his loving care. And we know that's not a description of who God is. Uh, The rest of the Bible shows. So if the Psalms were theological treatises, they would affirm that God does not forget his people and that his abandonment here is only apparent. But we have to take it as it is. It's a song. And so the goal of this song in particular is to describe feelings. It does not need the same level of precision and detachment as a treatise. Uh, and I think that's a helpful way to understand some of these psalms where the, the psalmist is just crying out in ways that even I know for us, we, we don't always feel comfortable with. Think of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? I cry to you day by day, but you don't answer. So this is just a way, and, and that's Psalm 22. That's Just remember, that comes right before Psalm 23, where it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Same author of of 22 and 23, who can both say, Why have you forsaken me? And God is my shepherd. I love how God gives us language. God teaches us how to process our pain. God wants us to to hate the evil in this world. And it's ultimately going to, because he knows it's going to ultimately build our faith. Uh, Michael Card, who's written a lot about lament, he says, Lament expresses one of the most intimate moments of faith, not a denial of it. It is a supreme honesty before a God whom my faith tells me I can trust. So that's one. We need to have lament. We also need to have humility. Um, Ephesians 2 says, We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Apart from the cross, there is no hope for any of us. And... um, Luke 13 is a really important passage on this. Uh, Jesus says, it was talking about how there were some present in that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, uh, which was a tr- you know, really heartbreaking thing. And he, Jesus answered them, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell. So this is a natural disaster. The tower falls. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. There's a number of things that we can draw from this. One, Jesus doesn't assume the innocence of the victims of those um, tragedies. Notice he says, unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. So he's assuming that even those who perished were not innocent people. But Jesus also doesn't assume that those people who perished are more wicked in any way. The assumption seems to be that all deserve to die. Whether dying by Pilate or that tower, it is no more than they deserve. The implication is it's only God's mercy that has kept them alive. And D.A. Carson really draws this passage out and he says, If in fact we believe that our sin properly deserves the wrath of God, then we, when we experience the sufferings of this world, all of them the consequences of human rebellion, we will be less quick to blame God. So D.A. Carson says that Jesus treats wars and natural disasters not as agenda items of a discussion of the mysterious ways of God, but notice how Jesus, the application Jesus draws. You too need to repent. Let, let these tragedies that show how broken this world is remind you of the effects of sin uh, and, and compel us to repentance. So our attitudes is lament, humility, and also action. God has called us to be ministers of reconciliation, to join him in pushing back the effects of the fall, and and we could 
talk so long about all the ways Christians have done so much good in this world, though not perfectly. So that's sort of rebellion, and, and this is pretty extensive. I'm going to try to summarize it at the end and give you kind of a bite-sized way to take all of the things said in here into a, a packaged way, but redemption. So I want to talk about lowercase r redemption and uppercase r redemption. Uppercase r being Jesus, but lowercase r redemption being ways that God uses evil and pain. God's sovereignty is such that even evil things may not only have a good result, but may be good in God's intent, evil, even if evil in human intent. Obviously, Joseph's a big example. Um, what man meant for evil, God used for good. And um, Habakkuk is another great story uh, that, that shows this reality. And we all have stories like this, uh, where we've seen God use hard things either in our own life or those we know, and, and bring good out of them. And Tim Keller comments on that um, in The Reason for God. With time and perspective, most of us can see good reasons for at least some of the tragedy and pain that occurs in life. Then he asks, why couldn't it be possible that from God's vantage, there are good reasons for all of them? If you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at, this is an interesting point, to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil, and suffering in the world, then you have at the same moment a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. Indeed, you can't have it both ways. So God, we, we can see that God can have the wisdom to use this evil in his own perfect way. So, but then there's also, really importantly, just the, the reality of Christ um, and and. and as part of God's solution to the problem of evil. Jesus is equal to the Father. I love how the book of John starts out talking about Jesus as the creator. Jesus is equal to the Father. He has this eternal relationship with the Father and it helps us explain the agony of the cross. We can't fathom the loss of our closest loved ones, much less the loss of infinite love that Jesus lost on the cross with his Father from eternity. Christianity teaches that Jesus bore on our behalf the endless exclusion from God that the human race has merited. And even in Gethsemane, before the cross, he's beginning to experience foretastes of this, and it puts him in a state of shock, if you remember. And on the cross, he says with Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And one commentator says, That cry has a ruthless authenticity. He didn't die renouncing God. He, he's, saying, he's still saying, My God, my God. He didn't surrender his faith in God in that moment, even though it was hard. So Jesus' death is qualitatively different than any other death. The physical pain, which was immense, was nothing compared to the spiritual experience of cosmic abandonment. Tim Keller goes on in The Reason for God. He says, On the cross, Jesus went beyond even the worst human suffering and experienced cosmic rejection and pain that exceeds ours as infinitely as his knowledge and power exceeds ours. In his death, God suffers in love, identifying with the abandoned and God-forsaken. Why did he do it? The Bible says that Jesus came on a rescue mission for creation. He had to pay for our sins so that someday he can end evil and suffering without ending us. So where does this bring us? Um, <clears throat> if we ask, why does God allow evil and suffering to continue... Um, and we look at the cross, Keller says, we still do not know what the answer is. We can, it doesn't solve all of our problems. 
However, we now know that the answer isn't what it isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us. I think that's a really profound thing that, that he pulls out of how the cross helps us process pain and evil. It can't mean that he doesn't love us, whatever it means. Um, and then you have the consummation, making all things new. Um, here on earth, uh, we, we are looking forward to an earthly renewal. It's not just this escape from earth, um, no release from physicality like nirvana. Um, it's a blessed hope that we have. So, um, I need to, okay. So, just kind of to summarize all of that in kind of four words, our response to evil and suffering as Christians is to first lament. We're called to hate evil. I think one practical way to hate evil, not just you know trying to renounce sin in our life, but also to lament sin. Uh, when we try to explain it away, um, it, it lessens its power. We need to be able to say that evil is wrong and it's, it's abnormal. We can't explain it. It's a mystery. So lament, lordship, everything we talked about about God's sovereignty, that God can still use it. Uh, the lamb pointing to Christ, that God has begun solving this problem through Christ and that it shows he still loves us. And then loyalty, that we are called, that Christians are called to, to join God um, in, in the renewal of this world. So then to summarize the whole lesson, Hinduism, suffering as balance, Buddhism, suffering as illusion, Islam, suffering as determined, atheism, suffering as natural. This is kind of a, you know, I, in my own words, trying to put it together for Christianity, um, suffering as tragic and temporary. So we need to admit that it's tragic and abnormal, but it's also temporary, that God um, is making all things new. There, you have it, it's solved. You never have to worry about it again. Um, no. So thank you for listening. We went a little over, but um, it was really fun to, to, and helpful to process those things for myself, and I hope that there's a few things that we can walk away with from this. So let me close. Father, um, what an what a encouragement to reflect upon um, just Jesus and all that Jesus means, not only to us here, but to this world, to this uh, weary world. Uh, I pray that you would let this uh, remind us of the beauty of the Christmas season that's coming up, and just that you came, and a weary world rejoices, and, and you brought peace on earth, um, and help it to just deepen our love of you. Lord, we need understanding and wisdom. There are still so many questions that have been left unanswered, things, nuances, all this that I I didn't even get time to discuss, and and I know we have further questions, Lord. So I pray for wisdom. I pray that you would give us insight um, and help us as we try to um, live faithfully in this difficult world um, and help us to uh, live such with, with your truth, armed with your truth, Lord and um, equip us to, to preach this good news, Lord, and tell of this good news to those who don't know you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.